0: Susan Burton, she is uh, a female ex-con and uh, she is using her life to, and she's in the center of the picture here, she's using her life to prevent other female ex-cons from returning to prison and she's doing her utmost, just uh, investing all her energy now in her years to help provide safe environments free of drugs, alcohol, abusive relationships uh, so that these women won't return uh, to prison. And uh, she has already worked with hundreds of women, 100 ex-cons, uh, and it's a wonderful story. It's a wonderful story of redemption. It's a wonderful story of good. And she is just one of about 10 stories that a recently new website by Starbucks called Up Standards uh, has featured. Uh, it's called Up Standards because they stand up for good, uh, for, for redemption, and it's this uh, wonderful this website of stories, inspiring stories. And we might call them stories of redemption. In fact, the website uses that term often. Now, uh, as we consider uh, a website like <laughs> Starbucks upstanders, uh, and there's no shortage of websites like this, there are YouTube channels, Soul Pancake, and, and even a lot of TED Talks and so forth, uh, our society um, just eats up these redemption stories. And I don't blame any of us. We're wanting to hear these great feel good stories. Our society needs these stories. We long for these stories. We want these stories of redemption. Why? Because consciously or subconsciously, we all know that we live in a very tired and broken world. And so, in the midst of the difficulties of life, we need some reprieve. We need these oasis stories to just lift us up out of our mire and to inspire us, to help us keep believing that we can make this world a better place. Now, to be a devil's advocate, and as a pastor, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, use that expression, but to be a devil's advocate, um, here's my question. Is it good enough to just have these wonderful stories? They're wonderful stories and, and real good work that is going on. But in, in the face of... Of considering life after this life eternity, is it good enough to pursue all these wonderful stories of redemption in the here and now and today at the expense of a good life in eternity that's my big question, and that's a question I would put up, of course thanking people who create these wonderful stories thanking God for his common grace to our, our world all these wonderful people who are trying to do some good, it's amazing, but in the end, in the final estimation, if eternity is true, which it is, if God is God and salvation comes only through Christ, then is it worth it to just try to make our lives as positive as possible at the neglect of eternal goodness, eternal redemption? If we go down to 2 Samuel chapter 12, we also see here a story of redemption. And the bottom line that I want you to see with me today, it's not so much a statement, but it's a question today. A bottom line question. Why wouldn't you, as we are hungry for stories of redemption, why wouldn't you want to enter Jesus' story of redemption? Why wouldn't you want to enter Jesus' story with faith and re- repentance? Again, I'm going to just ask the three basic questions. What was God meaning to say to his people, the, the original author, to his original audience? And then we're going to ask the question, how do we begin to see God's greater story of redemption, his gospel story unfolding in this history of David? Then third, so what? What does this mean for, for you and me? As we begin to consider what did God want his people to learn? First, he wanted Big Picture to see, his people to see a fallen king. A fallen king engrossed at that point in his life in his own self-preservation, his own story of, of self-pleasure, his own self-interest, in short, selfishness. A, a fallen king engrossed in that story. But the fallen king being brought back into God's story for his life. And so in verses 1 to 4, we begin to see God's story unfolding. And first we see that God's story interrupts. It's a story that interrupts. The passage today begins, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. As you read scripture, and as I read more and more, it's so interesting how... Often little connectors and conjunctions, ands and therefores and thens are used. And and we know that chapter 11 ended, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And chapter 12 verse 1 begins, and the Lord loved David so much that he would not leave David alone, engrossed in his own selfish story. And so we see here, and the Lord. And that's God coming to interrupt and God interrupts by sending a prophet, a servant of his, someone to speak God's message and truth to David. He sends Nathan to David. And notice the, the choice of words here. He came to him. Nathan came to him, and God came to David through Nathan. And so we see a wonderful approach, a personableness. A, a God personally seeking after David it gives us pictures of even God coming to us through Christ but as the Lord goes to David what kind of how does he approach him God does what he's been doing from the very beginning he speaks a word and so the Lord said to him and so God interrupts David he loves David so much and so let's just pause there and just soak that in this week, I don't know, in your own personal uh, pursuit of God, how, how many times you paused to just read God's word, to pray, to listen. Which just so in that God wants to speak to you. God has wanted to speak to his people, his creation, humans, the crown of his creation from the onset of creation. And even today, as he did in David's life to hear me for a moment, uh, all marriages have their first big fight, and I remember uh, Linda's and, and my first big fight, and uh, I certainly was not without my great mistakes and my need to apologize in this great big fight, but as the fight was unraveling, uh, Linda said it was later at night, so she said, go sleep in the other room, and so I did. And I fell asleep. And then in the middle of the night, I woke up to this jab in my side. It's like, you weren't supposed to go to the other room. And I was so confused. It's like, well, you told me to go to the other room. And then as the heat finally cooled down and dissipated, and and we made our event, and I said, sorry, I'm trying to learn from this experience and not make the same mistake. And I asked, so when you tell me to go to the other room, you're pushing me away you really mean don't go to the other room and you want me to keep to stay right by your side and keep pursuing you and talking to you? It's like, yes. Right? God gave me enough wit to, and, and, and intelligence to <laughs> ask that question. And, and ever since, for the past 10 years, I have just continually, by God's grace, been pursuing her. Now, that I offer that to you as, as a broken picture, as, as a fumbled picture of, of a covenant one. Someone learning to pursue the one that they have made, the covenant to, whom they love, no matter what the circumstance. Now God, He expresses that kind of covenant love to perfection. And God, He doesn't owe anything in an apology to anyone. He hasn't done any wrong. And yet, He pursues us. unceasingly, regardless of the circumstance, regardless of what we have done And that's what God is doing here. He interrupts David with a word. And it's not just any word. Now I want you to know what kind of word. It's a story. Consider the alternative. God could have come guns blazing to the prophet Nathan. Nathan could have been pointing an incriminating finger and just laid down the law. And just come out and said, this is what you've done wrong. You've broken this law out of, of, of this many laws of God's commands. But no, instead, he leads him with a story. And this is a reflection of God's heart, his tenderness towards David. And so he tells the story, and just to recap, I mean, even from a child to, to a, a hundred-year-old person, we all love stories and we're all willing to listen to a story and and so the story is that there was this rich man who, in short, extorted, oppressed, took advantage of this poor man because a guest came of the rich man's. And he wanted to feed him. And so what does he do? He takes the poor man's little new lamb because he's so greedy and doesn't want to use any of his own resources. And he feeds that poor man's land to his guest. And so Nathan tells the story. And now he begins to see that God's story not only interrupts, but it begins to stir David's heart. It begins to stir David's heart in verses 5 to 6. Now recall the story. It's, it is oppressive. It is even you and I, when we see this story here, it's unfair that this rich man would rob from this poor man. But notice David's inordinate reaction, as his heart is being stirred. In verse 5, then David's anger, So, I mean, at that point, sure, we don't blame you, David. This is a terrible story of oppression and extortion. And now the author continues to describe David's anger that it was greatly kindled like a forest fire. Against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. Now, is it just me, or is David's reaction extreme? Yes, this rich man has done wrong, but does he deserve to die? Hear me again. And I remember uh, when I was first trying to teach one of my kids how to act and they're uh, pretty young, and and so I said, one plus one one, equals, and I brought it together, 11, (laughs) and I said, okay, okay, reset. One plus one equals peace, (laughs) right? And they weren't getting it, and I was determined to teach them the simple uh, addition, and uh, I kept going at it, and then all of a sudden these inordinate emotions started rising to the surface. And, and I kid you not, in that moment, I, just to be honest, I started having these flashbacks to when my dad was personally tutoring me. And, and just uh, the difficulty, and I, I love it, I thank him for, for wanting to you know, teach me these things, but, but all this anger and some hurt was, was rising to the surface, and, and then I was beginning to take it out on this kid. <laughs> Now Linda was seeing us from the side and she had enough common sense and enough reason to stop and say, Albert, your kid is only two and a half. (laughs) Just be happy that they can count and that they know the peace sign. (laughs) And so even in my life, there are these inordinate emotions. Now listen carefully. When, When you have certain emotions that are inordinate and rise to the surface, it is a telltale sign that there's some lack of inner peace, that something is awry, that you are disturbed somehow in your heart inside. And David here is no different. Nathan, he tells a masterful story to push all the right buttons in in David's soul. When you go back to the story, and he describes how this poor man used to eat of his morsel and drink of his cup, and and this ewe lamb laid in his arms, that would have reminded David subconsciously or consciously of how he brought, as this ewe lamb uh, represents Uriah, the one that he murdered. It certainly would have struck some memories of him bringing Uriah into his court, trying to feed him, get him to drink and become drunk. And then Nathan's choice of words that this few lamb was like a daughter to this poor man. In the original language, the word for daughter is bat. And it's the first syllable of Bathsheba's name. And certainly there would have been some association there, or some reminder of Bathsheba. And then when Nathan describes a traveler coming to the rich man, the word for traveler, it has the same root for walking or wandering. And going back to 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 2, when Scripture describes David walking about on his roof, perhaps even wandering in his heart. It's the same association. And so Nathan was telling a story to push buttons, to stir David's heart. And so now we see in verse 7 to 9 that God's story not only stirs him, but it convicts him. And so Nathan said to David, and David is now in a place to acknowledge that he is the man in the story. And so Nathan says, you are the man. So God not only stirs, but he comes to the point to to convict. David is told what his specific guilt is in verse 9. Nathan says, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? And that word despise there, it means to disesteem, to make less important. Why have you made less important than it should be God's word to you? God's laws through Moses, what your spirit senses, all the blessings that He's poured out to you, all the times that you have sung to God and written psalms and felt His communion with you, why have you despised, why have you made less important His word to you? When David lost sight of God and His word, he lost sight of the life of his life, the heart of his heart, the reason for all his reasons, the joy of his joys, and he stopped desiring God. And when he stopped desiring God, he desired earthly pleasures to be his ultimate fill, and his pursuit of earthly pleasures wound up in this great mess. And then, in verses ten to twelve, God, we wish his story would be a fairy tale. You would know, just magically wave a wand... and just reset everything... and perhaps go back in time... and David would have no recollection... of make, making these grave mistakes... and he would not do them... It's not a fairy tale though... it's a fair tale... and so God... because He's a God of justice... and ultimate fairness... in verses 10 to 12... we begin to see the consequences... Now therefore... the sword shall never depart from your house... there will always be strife... and violence... Around your family, because you have despised me again. The same word, you disesteemed me. You have taken the wife of your eye. Notice that God is referring to the sheep as the wife of your eye, not your wife. God remember that for a point later. And in verse eleven, thus says the Lord: Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. We know that this is a prophecy what will happen through his son Absalom a few chapters down. And ye shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. You did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. In short, God lays out the consequences black and white. But God's story is not just a fair story. Now we begin to see God's redeeming story. It begins, and we see it in verses 15 to the rest of the chapter. And as he is facing the consequences, in verse 16, David therefore sought God. As the child became sick and is dying, David sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And this here is actually a picture of redemption. Not that David can do some good work, some penance for God to relent and not take the life of a child any longer. But in David's heart, in his soul, there is now a work happening. He has been humble. He is desperate. He has put God back in the center of his life. He has realized that everything else in life, all his power, all his pleasures, is nothing compared to being right with God. And that in itself is a great redemption. And then in verse 20, the child is passed. And then we read in verse 20, then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And here, too, is a symbolic picture of David as if he was rising from the dead, rising from the grave, as he was rising from the earth. And he's washed. He's cleansed. And he changes his clothes as if he's a new man. Of course, you and I are a bit confused. The servants are confused. How can he almost just switch it off? He was groveling. He was fasting. He was desperate. He was wailing as the child was sick and dying. And now that the child is dead, how can he all of a sudden, just 180 degrees, be this different person? Because here too is an important story, an aspect of redemption, that the past becomes the past. Even David says it himself, the child, when it was alive, who knows if God would be merciful. He gives and takes away. God chooses to be merciful to whom he chooses to be merciful now that the child is dead, the past is the past. And I must move on. So here, too, is a picture of redemption. And we see in verse 22, he explains, while the child is alive, I fasted and wept. Who knows, but the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live. Can I bring him back again? And here now when he says, I shall go to him he will not return to me. And so David here, now he has a view of the future. He knows that the past has to be the past. He has to live in the present for eternity. He knows his only hope is to be reunited with his fallen son. And so he has a view of eternity. And then God works out his redemption in verses 24 to 25. When David comforted his wife, notice that. Remember earlier, Ashton would see that God referred to Bathsheba as your wise wife. But here now, the author is also affirming that now David is living in the present for the future, and he comforted his wife, and went in to lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon, which means peaceful or at peace. And the Lord loved him. And the word for love here is a deep friendship love. And God is declaring to David, "I am not at odds with you any longer. You are a friend of God's, and this son is a friend of mine." And Solomon was the name that David and Bathsheba gave the boy. And look at the name that the Lord gives Solomon. Jedediah. Which means Yahweh's beloved. (coughs) And so God here is also directly working redemption. And blessing David and Bathsheba with a new life. And saying now the past is the past. And Nathan declared it as well. That your sins are put away in verse 13. The Lord has put away your sin, meaning He has atoned you, and you shall not die. You are forgiven, and you won't be punished for eternity. Of course, David would die physically, so here we know that the Lord is speaking of an eternal death, that David will not die be damned in eternity. So, now let's begin to ask the question How is God writing the gospel story here? the way we look for and recognize the gospel story in these pages especially in the Old Testament is when we begin to recognize how Jesus who knew no sin would become sin for us when we begin to see how David failed when we begin to see how when we place our lives, our stories into the story of David and we see ourselves and we see how we failed And then we begin to see how Jesus, who knew no sin, made up for how David failed and how you and I might fail. Then we begin to see the gospel unfold. Today we see God's dreaded fairness, being very honest, deadly honest about the consequences in David's life, clashing with his incomprehensible grace and tenderness to redeem David's life. So, how could he do this? How? Because a thousand years later, we'd also see another king come. We'd also see another son of David come, Jesus. And this Jesus, he also came telling stories. Here, God, he approaches David, and his redemption is brought forth through a story of same Jesus, this other king a thousand years later would also come telling stories of the kingdom, parables, to speak of God's love for his people and humanity, to speak of God's forgiveness, to speak of God's great kingdom and eternity. And whereas David, the finger was pointed at him, you are the man. This Jesus also would stand before rulers, before Pilate and Herod, are you the king of the Jews? And a says, are you the man? And Jesus would answer, because as you say, you have said so. David faced his consequences. David's sin would be laid bare before all Israel, under the sun. And Jesus as well, he would be laid bare not only before all of Israel but for the entire Roman Empire and really truly for the whole world to see but not because of his sins but because of your sin and my sin not under the sun the scripture says that the clouds darken and it's under the darkness of being forsaken by his father What I want you to see is Jesus, he didn't only come telling stories, but he is the great story of God. He is the story that God uses to reach out to you and me tenderly. Perhaps it might be easier if God just showed up to every person and said, here is the list of all you've done. We you would be crushed under. Instead, he sends Jesus to this earth. He sends his great story. He sends the author, the beginning, the end, the alpha, the omega, the perfecter of it. He sends the hero of the story. He sends the victim of the story. He sends the rescuer and the one crying out on the cross to be rescued. He sends Jesus. And Jesus is God's great story to you and me. So what is this supposed to mean for your life and my life, for our story? Jesus invites us to see our stories in you through his story. So how is this supposed to transform us? How do we look with faith upon Jesus and receive this redemption for our own selves? I want to leave you three habits of the soul. Three habits of grace for you to live out the sweetness. As you cling to Christ, you stay connected to Him, as you live it out by faith and draw upon Him and, and everything that He is, as you look upon Him in faith, whatever I can't blank, whatever you feel that you can't do, be patient, be honest, be faithful, be diligent, be forgiving, be, whatever it is, you look on Christ. And as God the Father who places Christ on you, everything that He is that, that you could experience living out in the power of the Spirit in the union with Christ, these habits of grace. So first, prayerfully repeat to yourself, God in Christ has forgiven me. Repeat this to yourself often. God in Christ has forgiven my past, is redeeming my present, and securing my eternity. That's what we see in David's life, that the past became the past. That's why he could just get up after the child passed away. He knew, okay, the past is the past. I can't do anything about it. And now I need to pursue God's grace, live in the present. I'm a new person. And believe that as you're perhaps you are facing some consequences of the past, but the past is the past, and by God's grace, as you're walking through consequences, still you can believe that there's a redemptive purpose. that God is doing that just as David was learning to seek God because of the consequences. As he was learning to commune with God, be drawn closer to God, and return to God, and make Him the center of His life. That can be a great purpose in the present for you as well. Second, give in the Spirit's interruption and stirring of your life. I want to compare it to just climbing a mountain. I've done just a little bit of mountain climbing, um, rock climbing more. And and as you are negotiating ledges and crevices, and pretend you're on this great mountain, this is Yosemite or or Sierra, I think, and and imagine you're there and you're stuck. How foolish would it be if you thought, okay, mountain, move for me. No, the mountain doesn't adjust to you. You have to adjust to the mountain. And I want to compare that to God in our lives. Many people complain, Well, if God is God, then why would He be like this? It doesn't matter. You can't complain that way. If God is God, then He can be whoever He wants. And so as He is interrupting your life, as He is stirring your heart, and recognize when it's His Spirit stirring in your soul. Adjust to Him. Respond to Him. Finally, look with faith upon Christ for redemption. Look with faith upon Christ. That's where your redemption is going to come from. Yes, God gives us the ability to experience little pockets of redemption, even not believing in Him. And we have people who stand up. We have websites like Upstanders and, and many wonderful stories of, that feel great. And we see positivity and change happening. But that won't stand up to the one final great feat that we need to overcome as we stand before God. And so look with faith upon Christ for your full and final ultimate redemption. The world is dying for redemption. Ian McEwen, he's a pretty renowned atheist and celebrated award-winning author, uh, and he wrote. He's written many books, but one book that uh, is well known is Atonement, which he wrote in 2001, and also became a movie. And in this story, the main character, Briony, this young girl. Uh, the story goes that she caused much grief in her older sister's life by falsely accusing her love interest, the one that her older sister wanted to marry, falsely accusing him of rape. And the story goes that eventually there's redemption and she, Brioni clears his name, they're married, they are successful in their careers, Brioni herself has become a successful author But then there's a great twist at the end. A brilliant, but ominous twist. And you find out at the end of the novel that that whole story of redemption was actually a book that Brioni had written. And so the story is about an author writing a story. And what really happened was that that gentleman was never clear of his name. And actually, her older sister, love interest they had ill things and their lives went awry. And she wrote this book for herself wanting to find some kind of atonement for her mistakes in the past. Listen to you and conclusion through the character of Brioni. This is Brioni reflecting at the end. How can a novelist achieve atonement when her absolute power of deciding outcome? She is also God. There is no one, no entity or higher form that she can appeal to or be reconciled with or that can forgive her. There is nothing outside her. In her imagination, she has set the limits and the terms, no atonement for God or novelists, even if they are atheists. It was always an impossible task, meaning atonement. And that was precisely the point. The attempt was all. And this is a very good summary of our human lives. Of those of us who live, who are, are trying to pursue so much positivity in our lives, it's because we want some sense of redemption and atonement. And our lives are going to be okay. But what the gospel says, No, there's only one final true redemption and atonement. And it comes only by looking with faith upon Jesus Christ. So go home. Go to your work week. Go to your homemaking. Go to your motherhood. Go to your fatherhood. Go to your friendships. Go to your entire life this week with this truth that God's grace Secures you. When you trust Christ, God's grace secures you for today and for eternity. But God's grace, it doesn't necessarily entirely cure you of everything here and now. But God's grace certainly will mature you. Mature you. As you cling to Christ, as you look upon Him with your redemption. And so John Newton wrote and sang with all his heart the second verse of his famous song: Through many dangers, tolls, and snares, I have already come. It's this grace that's brought me safe thus far, and grace will we need Let's pray.